0: Shalom, everyone, I'm Monty Jeter with Lionel Lamb Ministries. I want to welcome you to our tour study this year. We are emphasizing the theme that the Torah is for all people. So this particular Sabbath, we have a double portion. We are in the book of Leviticus, and we're beginning at Leviticus chapter 16. Our portion, first portion, is called Akare Mot, which means after the death. And it's speaking to the title is speaking to the death of two of Aaron's sons when the tabernacle was being dedicated. And if you recall, um, they offered strange fire uh, and they did a, a, a ritual thing with the altar that they weren't supposed to do. Fire from the altar came out and killed them. So we're now talking about after the death of them, we have this additional teaching we also of uh, the portion that is called Kedoshim. Kedoshim means uh, holy ones, and that's going to include chapters 19 and 20. So we're going to try to go from chapter 16 to ch- through chapter 20 uh, in this particular teaching. First topic in chapter 16 that we're going to address is we're going to get some instruction from Moses on how the Day of Atonement is to be carried out by the priests, and particularly by the high priest, in the temple. Now, before we go any further, this is one of the classic discussions and questions that I like to ask in the faith, especially for a lot of folks that are coming in, having been previously taught the faith in the church, and they come into the Messianic movement. You see, we Messianics, in the springtime, we have a Passover which is the Feast of Redemption. There's an actual cup of redemption. And this is when the Lord uh, came, the blood of the lamb, as we teach, and did the work of redemption. And from that, we get salvation. But in the fall, we have this holiday, which is called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And redemption and atonement often are moved together, in religious discussions, and most of us in the tra- spiritual training we've received, we can't seem to distinguish between the two. In other words, um, you take your average believer. Yes, I'm. You know, the, the Messiah is my Redeemer. He's also my Atonement. Okay. Well, what does that mean? What What what's, does that mean? The same thing? No, it doesn't. I assure you, there are two different words with two different definitions. But the average person doesn't know what the, the different definition is. And they don't understand why do we have the Passover with the Feast of Redemption and why do we have the Day of Atonement and, and Yom Kippur? Why is that separate? What is God doing there? What, what is he trying to teach us and illustrate to us? So let me read to you now about the instructions for the Day of Atonement and then we'll have a discussion about what's the difference uh, for it. Uh, verse two, chapter 16, and the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat and Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with bull for a sin offering, a ram for burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with linen turban. And these are holy garments. Thus he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull before the sin offering, which is for himself, and he may make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell Shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Now it goes on to give additional detail as to how he's present himself and go into the Holy of Holies and things like that. But the crux of the ceremony uh, that it's really talking about is this business of these two goats. And he will go and bring these two goats in the temple. And he will then lay his hands on them for the designated for the different uh, offering, and then they used to have constructed this uh, this device that one would say uh, called Azazel, and the other one with with another name. I'm, for the moment, I let me think of it. And for the other one, but essentially what these do is it's a lot, it's a 50-50 lot between the two goats that says one of these goats is going to be slain and is going to be presented, the blood presented before the Lord, and the other one is going to have the burden on it. It's going to live, but it's going to be taken out and removed from from them at the temple. The one that's removed is called the scapegoat. And this is a very interesting word, scapegoat, because just as it sounds, it's making reference that somehow this goat is going to escape. And so there's a picture here of one dies and one escapes. And this is the core uh, thing that's going on in the temple ceremony for um, the Day of Atonement. They also say that the burden of Israel's sins as a corporate nation, that the burden is on that scapegoat. So that when he leaves, he carries away uh, the sins of omission from Israel, not the sins of commission, but the sins of things they should have done, they didn't do or for because of ignorance didn't know. And so this goat is to carry those away into the wilderness. Now, in the days of the temple, this was quite a procedure uh, because here's how they would actually conduct this removal of the scapegoat. Once the scapegoat was determined, they would then, uh, uh, well, first of all, they, they had on these two goats, they used to tie red yarn a red thread onto the horns of the goat. And they would take the scapegoat and they would take a piece of that yarn, that red yarn, leave, uh, they would take it off of the goat. They would go over and tie it to the door of the temple. Then they would take the goat out of the temple proper. And as soon as it got outside the temple, it would then be given to what is called a fit man. And a fit man meant it was a Gentile, but he was a righteous man. It wasn't one of the sons of Israel. It was a fit man, it was somebody separate from them. And they had pre-staged men extending from the temple east into the Judean wilderness of which they had these flags, and they would go out a full stadia, in other words, a distance, and they would maintain a line of sight so that this, uh, so let's say I was the first guy with the flag, I could still see the guy with the second flag. Now, I maybe couldn't see the guy with the third flag, but I could see the second flag. The second flag guy can see the first flag guy, and he could see the third flag guy. And there were 10 of these extended out. And the idea was the fit man would take the goat, the scapegoat, and he would go out to the where the 10th man could see him. One tradition says that he would push the goat off a cliff. That, that was just a tradition. The reality was he would just release him. He would release him. Now, the guy with the number 10 flag would see it the moment it was being released, and he'd signal his flag. Well, number nine guy sees the signal. He signals his flag. And so on, all the way back to the temple. So that in, the people in the temple, as soon as the signal came up from the, the first flag guy, they knew that the goat had been released in, literally in, that, in those moments. And they knew at the moment the goat was released. They would then turn and look to the temple doors, and the red yarn will have turned white. It's one of the miracles of the temple, well known. And they were talking about how the red scarlet is turned to white as snow. If you remember, Isaiah has spoken to such a thing, how God removes sins. Well, it was demonstrated in this yarn that was a part of the scapegoat. And uh, as I said, there's one tradition that said, the goat died and was thrown off a cliff. Uh, You throw a goat off of a cliff, they're pretty good on their feet dealing with cliffs. I doubt that it would kill a goat. But anyways, that was a tradition. And the name Azazel that was for that goat became popularized, are you ready for this? By various writers uh, in the European areas, and they turned the name into the name of a demon. I mean, this is how bizarre this has become. That name is not a demonic name, but popular writers have tried to use it as a name. I won't mention you the horror movies, but I've actually seen some movies where they were using that expressly for that purpose. And I was going, obviously, this is a case where the author of the book and the story decided to steal something that came from ancient Hebrew, uh, you know, to spice up their, uh, their story. That's just kind of a sidebar issue. B- but the bottom line is this, this whole business of taking the scapegoat out, there's a kind of a mystery associated with it. There's a lot of confusion about exactly what took place. But the bottom line is that the children of Israel and the high priest would believe that Lord, the Lord had removed from them their sin, and they were now one with God, that there was no issue between them and God as a nation. And so here's Yom Kippur, which is on the 10th of Tishri, the turn of the year has taken place. And the first thing that we do is we get to this point where our previous sins are no longer an issue before the Lord. Now what happens at this year, that's that's another thing, but, but the previous uh, sins of the nation are done away with and we don't have a problem with God at all. That moment where suddenly you are reconciled to God and there's no issue still remaining with you is what is called atonement atonement is reconciliation and another name for the Yom Kippur is the day of reconciliation now this is where it gets very interesting from the prophetic this Day of Atonement, and all of the things I've described here, has a tremendous story to tell prophetically, because the Day of Atonement is directly associated by the prophets of Israel as being a future day of the Lord, and that's when the ultimate wrath and judgment of God comes upon the earth. Now, you would go, well, how can we say atonement is us being reconciled to God and yet, at the same time, it means ultimate judgment upon the world. Well, it comes down to this. Again, reconciliation is there's no more issue between me and God. There's no more issue. With, is it, with You're at one with God, atonement. You're completely reconciled to God. Escape goes taken. We don't have any more of that issue. Whatever may happen afterward, that's a different thing. But whatever's been in the past, it's done. Well... At the Day of Atonement, that's when God decides who lives and who dies. He's going to be reconciled to the whole world. The world is going to be reconciled to him. We're going to make the final decision. And so when a believer uh, comes to know the redemptive work of the Messiah and trusts Yeshua of Nazareth to receive forgiveness of sins, to accept him as the Lamb of God's sacrifice, propitiation and payment is made for willful, defiant sins, and he's passed from death to life. And essentially, I'm still in the world though, but between God and I, I'm completely reconciled to the Lord, and so therefore, I have atonement with the Lord as a natural result of the redemptive work that the Messiah has done. But it's a a completely different thing. But there's a day of atonement coming for the world. There's a day coming that's illustrated in Yom Kippur in which the world is also going to be reconciled to God. And that is that if you, you don't have payment for your sins and your sins are still stuck with you, judgment. And at that point, don't have an issue with God anymore because you don't exist anymore with your sins. God doesn't have to deal with you anymore. Judgment has fallen on you. And it's, it's done. And you can be at one with God in his kingdom or you can be at one with God in hell. You know, it, it, that's what the choice has come down to. You can live eternally with him or eternally die before him. But there's no more choices, no more no more procedures no more ifs ands or buts it's done for it so we have this day of atonement this scapegoat there is an incredible prophetic element in that that has to do with the end of the age not only the day of the Lord there's a specific prophecy at the start of the great tribulation leading to the end and the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord in which that uh, Yeshua taught in Matthew 24 that when the image is set up, the, the second part of the abomination of desolation, when the image is set up, he then warns those that are in Judea, not all over the world, not even all of Israel, those that are in Judea, they must flee on the day that image is set up and they are warned that they must flee rapidly. They do not have time to go back and get a cloak. He warns them, don't go back down in your house and try to pack something. You need to skedaddle out of there. Where is it they're to flee? They go to the place the scapegoat was released. They flee into the Judean wilderness straight east of Jerusalem. And once they get there, something incredible is gonna happen. The prophecy says in the book of Revelation that the devil was seeing people escaping, seeing those that are listening to the words of Yeshua. They're escaping and he, of course, wants to destroy them. And according to the prophecy, there'll be great rains and there will be a, a, a kind of a flash flood of water that comes down and travels down through the Judean hills and mountains toward the the Dead Sea, and he will send a flood, the devil will send a flood that is to sweep away all those who are escaping. By the way, the ground east of Jerusalem as you go out into those hills and wilderness is extremely treacherous and, and dangerous ground in the springtime and the fall because it absolutely is true. When the spring rains come, uh, the waters rush down through there and there have been multiple um, events that have taken place in modern Israel before they improved the highway and the old Jericho Road and so forth. Buses were swept off the road by the flash floods. Hikers have been killed. And in fact, the ruins at Qumran that have been discovered in recent years They were revealed as a result of a great flash flood that came down through and washed away of the material near there that they discovered additional things at Qumran. So when the waters come down there, they are uh, torrential. And if you're in that area, you'll die. But the place where the scapegoat is released has a particular name in modern Israel today. It's called tel kippah, the hill of the kippah. Apparently the hill is shaped like a kippah. And at that point, that's where they're released. Now that's very appropriate for them to call it that because a kippah is a derivation of the word kippur and when a man is wearing a kippah, he is testifying that I'm reconciled to the God of Israel, that my atonement is from the God of Israel. My reconciliation is with him. So this little kippah up here is all about what Yom Kippur is about, and it's all about this scapegoat being released, and it's all about the first, the the ultimate of the um, end time prophecies, the day of the Lord. It's amazing how this is. Now, what I've just described to you is dramatically different than when we're talking about Passover. It's dramatically different from the blood of the lamb and, and drinking the cup and eating the matzah bread and, 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 and celebrating a redemption that leads to salvation. It is th- these final events that are taking place. Now, as I mentioned to you before, it has been my observation that a lot of believers, you know, they slur redemption and atonement together, and they've got a pretty good handle on what redemption is, and they just slur over and they think atonement means the same thing, and as I just shared with you, boy, it means something different. But the but the results are the same. Yeshua is your Redeemer, and He is your atonement. And so this particular procedure was a very detailed procedure to be performed annually for Israel, and it is considered within Judaism the holiest day of the year. You fast on the Day of Atonement. And in fact, it is considered that if you fail to fast on the Day of Atonement, that you're worthy to be cut off from the people of Israel. And so in Israel, this is definitely a fast day. For it no pleasure taken in part of that has to do with that when the day of the Lord does come you and I are believers and so we're not going to be rejoicing and singing and dancing when God has to judge the world the prophecy says we will be silent and somber and quiet until it's completed and part of the observance of Yom Kippur as the scripture says, to afflict our souls. That means don't do pleasurable things. Don't, don't eat a meal. Don't go out and have fun. You just cool it. There at your house or wherever you're at um, until the, the sundown comes at the completion of the 10th of Tishri. Now, there's another thing they also offered to this. You are not to connect any fast before Or any fast effort after it with it. In other words, on the tenth of Nisan uh, Tishri, when you're observing the feast of uh, excuse me, Yom Kippur, that is a fast day, and it's not connected with any other day. It has to be completely separate. So you don't continue. Well, I fasted on the tenth. I think I'll go ahead and fast on the eleventh. No. You have what's called a break the fast meal now you, everybody should know about what that is breakfast now most of us we eat breakfast in the morning because during the night we were fasting we were not eating we had our evening meal then we sleep and then we get up in the morning and we break the fast that we just were part of while we were sleeping and so at the end of Yom Kippur as the evening of Yom Kippur comes, you have a break the fast meal. You definitely eat a meal, eat some foodstuffs, so as to separate out that day from any other days as far as a fast might go. So you have a break the fast meal. Those are some of the elements that have to do with Yom Kippur. And today, as we observe the Feast of the Lord uh, throughout the year, this is a single one-day feast We call it a feast. It's appointed times of the Lord. But the feast part doesn't come until after it's over with, when we eat the break, the fast meal for it. Otherwise, we abstain uh, from it all. Let me go ahead and just add uh, some additional instruction with regard to that. Um, I don't want you to get the idea that this fast is, the standard is absolute. The the fast that we're talking about, all of the Lord's fasts, are set up on the basis of the following things. For example, uh, it's not good for you to fast and go without water. In fact, people who fast for extended times, they still drink water, but they won't drink other, uh, other types of drinks. With it. it'll, it'll be strictly limited to a water fast, as we call it. If you're a guy like me who's diabetic and you have a medical issue, then you are to be given the necessary food, supplement, whatever you need to maintain your health. In my particular case, if my blood sugar gets too low and I have to consume something uh, to be able to keep my blood sugar up, even though it's Yom Kippur, I, I am to take something. And in the case of like me, what traditionally I have done is I usually get a little bit of apple juice with a little bit of water in it or a little bit of orange juice, something that's sweet that can raise my blood sugar, and I sip on that or have a drink of that during Yom Kippur to make sure that my health remains and so forth. Again, this is a classic case of the Lord gives us the objective to obey and fast, but we set the standards and conditions based on what are our conditions that we're in and where we are at. And so while I observe Yom Kippur, I also monitor my blood sugar level on that day since I'm not consuming food on a normal basis. The Lord goes on to say that this is a permanent statute in all generations for all of Israel. Um, and, you know, it's always struggling. Let me read to you um, from verse 29 of chapter 16. This shall be a permanent statute for you In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls, not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. This isn't just for, quote, the Jewish people. This is for anybody who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. It is for that purpose. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. In other words, there's no more sins. You've been completely resolved. You're reconciled to God. Verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. Permanent. Now, this is the the thing that always has struck me as strange. You know, every one of these biblical feasts, and this one, the highest holy day in Judaism, recognizes that it is for all people. Our theme this year is the Torah is for all people. There it is. It's a permanent statute, and it's for all people. Name me a category of people that wouldn't be included in that they're supposed to keep that statute. Well, the only category you can think of is unbelievers. If you don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, well, then you don't have to do it. It's a commandment for all those that believe in the God of Israel. By the way, for my Christian friends, let me remind you that Yeshua of Nazareth, whom you call Jesus Christ, is the King of Israel. So maybe if you believe in him and he's the king of Israel, maybe you're part of what Paul called the common wealth of Israel. And maybe this is a commandment even for you. I can assure you that when Yeshua was on the cross, he did not nail this commandment to the cross and make it go away. God said it's permanent in his own words, permanent. And you know what permanent means? Oh, it goes away after the New Covenant comes. No, it doesn't mean that. It means exactly what the Word says. And here's an example of how the Torah is for all people. This specific commandment having to do with the Day of Atonement. Let me move on for just a little bit. One of the things that the rest of uh, chapter 17 then starts dealing with is some very specific commandments. Um, and they, they they go into the subject of idolatry. They go into the subject of shedding of blood. They go into what is fit and proper. And in every instance, it's including the alien and sojourner. Not only the native-born, but all the others that are with you are supposed to do that. Um, and now we get to the subject of chapter 18. Before I go into chapter 18, let me go ahead and just quickly tell you what we're going to be looking at. Uh, Basically Moses is going to list off for us, and I usually don't read this, I'll let you read it on your own, but basically Moses is going to list off every sexual perverse thing you can imagine in your whatever. And it's going to call it lewd and perverse and sinful. So, in chapter 17, we're talking about idolatry and what is fit and proper, and in chapter 18, we're going to talk about sexual perversion. The reason I point this out is that these two chapters, Torah teachers refer to this, these two chapters, as the heart of the law. The commandments here are precise and specific. If you're looking for a place, Gee, I'd like to look up the commandments of God, and you think, talking about something other than the Ten Commandments, you go to Leviticus 17 and 18. These are the commandments, and they're detailed about specifically for it. The reason I point this out is because we have a very specific story in the New Testament given to us. It's about Paul when he returns after his missionary journey, and he's got a couple of Gentile believers in tow with him, examples of the Gentiles receiving the gospel, and he comes back to Israel, and he comes back to Jerusalem. And these Gentile believers, they're all excited about getting to come to Jerusalem and so forth. But then there's a bunch of the former Pharisees who've become believers of Yeshua, they see these Gentiles, and they revert back to something they used to do even before Yeshua came into their lives, and that is you've got to put these Gentiles under subjection, we've got to turn them into proselytes. And so there's a bunch of these Pharisaic believers who rose up and said to the Gentiles that were with Paul, and they said, oh, you have to be circumcised. You know, you have to come under and, and be part of the same thing with us. And Paul began to argue with them and say, no, no, that's not correct. They're they're, they're believing in, in the Lord. The, the Lord has given them the Holy Spirit. There's clear evidence they've received redemption. And, and here we are. And yes, they obey the commandments of the Lord, but they're not keeping that specific stuff because it's not appropriate to them. And what it really is is a case of which commandments under what condition are to be kept because Circumcision has a specific objective, has a specific standard, and has a specific uh, condition for it. However, the Pharisees had expanded that—not what the Lord had said about. It. They had expanded. Oh, everybody's got to do it according to us. The procedure today in Judaism, that originated from the Pharisees, is called tippit dome. There has to be a cutting of blood. And circumcision is is a circular cut, but they call it tip it dome. There has to be, you have to cut them, you have to see some blood. And that's basically what we're saying. When these men came in, Gentiles who were believers said, Up until we cut that for you, you're not really safe. Ridiculous. So the dispute rises up to the point, they decide they better have a council meeting on this. So Peter the apostle to the Jews, he's called. James, he's the leader of the believers in Jerusalem. He's going to host the event. So Paul and Peter and many other brethren come to this council of Jerusalem. This is all in Acts chapter 15. And by the time they came, you can read now in verse 5 of chapter 15 where these Pharisaic believers, they've now expanded their thing. It's not just that you have to keep Uh, circumcision to be uh, saved you have to keep the whole law of course keep the whole law according to their definition of how to keep the law and they're basically changing the whole dynamics of the doctrine of salvation salvation comes by faith not by obedience obedience produces blessing faith produces righteousness which leads to salvation and they were slurring them together and that was the great mistake of the Pharisees they, they, they reversed what God had taught Abraham Abraham was taught that his faith was counted for righteousness that led to salvation and that obedience is why he got the blessing and they had now converted to where obedience is how you get righteousness that leads to salvation. So here comes these Gentile believers. Oh, you guys got to keep the law, you got to obey according to what we say. Well, there was an argument about that. And the way the argument basically went was this. Peter stood up and he said, brethren, I'd like to remind you that it was under my ministry when I was in Joppa that the first Gentiles came to faith. And there he was, he went to Caesarea, remember, from Joppa, it's in Acts chapter 10, and he was compelled by the Lord to go to this Gentile house. He started to preach, and the Holy Spirit fell on him, and all these Gentiles got saved. And that God was showing him, through a vision and through this activity, that he's no longer to call the Gentiles unclean. They're included in the faith, they are included not only in the New Covenant faith, they're included in the whole faith that Peter understood, which was Moses and the Torah. So he had learned that lesson, or at least that's the lesson that had been given. So here he is in this council, and he's giving argument to the fact, you're accusing Paul of doing something strange, I'm here to tell you God used me first to do this. And then Paul follows up with Peter's argument And he says, take a look at these believers, take a look at these Gentiles, ask them any question you want. See if it's not true that they've turned their hearts to God and they're now obeying the Lord from the heart. Well, they have the discussion that basically shut down the Pharisaic Jews, even though they were believers that shut them down. It says, hey, the doctrine you have is wrong. There is no salvation by works and obedience. Salvation is by faith. This is the reason why Paul gave us that famous verse in Acts 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved, or for by faith are you saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. That's the shortened version of the teaching that we get from Abraham. And that was the product. He wanted to make sure the Gentile believers understood salvation comes through faith, not by the works of the law, not by the works of righteousness. That's you know, and, and that became a very important point because that was a rumbling issue in those days. Uh, given some of the Jews who had become believers, they're still caught up in the old Pharisaic teachings. Even Peter was; he was scared to death that to back in Jerusalem they were going to find out that he was in the house of a Gentile. That, that's Pharisaic stuff. The Pharisees had set up the middle wall of partition. We don't want the Gentiles even coming into the anywhere near. We don't even want them to look in the temple which God never authorized, never set up. That was Pharisaic stuff. And the Messiah took issue with it, by the way. So James is there. He's the one who's kind of monitoring this whole thing and and seated on the case. And it's time to come to a conclusion. Okay? We've heard what the Pharisaic believers have to say. We've heard what Peter had to say, what Paul had to say we've seen the testimony, it's now time to render a judgment. And that's the way, in in the Hebrew way of things, that's how things were done. You present all your evidence, and then there's one you trust who's in judgment, he renders a judgment. James rendered a judgment. And he said, what is happening here is foretold by the prophets. And he quoted, I believe from Amos, where... That, that the tabernacle of David is to be raised up, and the tabernacle of David is the sukkah, it's the big tent of David, that de- under David's leadership and kingship, all of the people, native-born, alien, sojourner, all that believe in the God of Israel, they all come under the same tent. They all come under the same sukkah, the tabernacle of David. By the way, that's a phrase not about the temple. Temple is mishkan. Sukkot is a tent, tabernacle. So he says, the prophets have said this. So he now gives his judgment. He says, these Gentiles who are coming to the faith, they have to do three essentials to be able to come into the assembly before we can teach them, before they can learn more. To be part of the fellowship, you got to do three things. Number one, You cannot participate in idolatry. You cannot bring an idol in and mix it with the God of Israel. You can't mix it with our fellowship. Number two, you cannot eat blood or things strangled. You must eat kosher, fit and proper foods. You cannot bring a pig into and set it on the table with the rest of us worshiping the Lord you must maintain the kosher standard, the fit and proper standard concerning food to be in fellowship with us, table fellowship. And third, he said, you cannot be a sexual pervert. You can't commit any of those perverse things to do. You know what he did in the letter, that's called the letter to the Gentiles. They wrote a letter out, said this is the word, for the, get, get this word out to all the Gentile believers. You know where he got it from? Leviticus 17 and 18. The letter to the Gentiles is the teaching of Leviticus 17 and 18, the heart of the law. And the reason why they call it the heart of the law is because these are essentials. These are essential commandments. There is no way that you can be observed as obeying the Lord if you're violating the commandments in Leviticus 17 and 18. They're very precise about certain kinds of behaviors. Now, our next portion, which is Ketoshim, holy ones, it takes this argument and it, and, and it goes further. Now, we were talking about atonement, being reconciled to God, being able to be in fellowship with one another. Ketoshim is now going to give you the definition of a holy person. We have this verse in Leviticus 18, which is kind of the theme of the whole book. You shall be holy, for I the Lord am holy. You could use the word holiness, and it would be about the book of Leviticus. And here we are at uh, verse uh, chapter 19, right after chapter 18, and we're going to get a definition for when he said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We're going to get a definition for that. And this is an, another area that is elusive to a lot of believers. Well, I hear those words about being holy, how in the world can I do it? I wanna share just real briefly, when I was a young man, um, one of my teachers um, who was teaching that, um, he offered this as instruction for it. And for a while, I used to hold to this. I have come since I've learned the Torah to adjust my thinking. But he would say, it is possible for you to be holy before God. It is possible for you. So what you do, is you sit down you get very calm and just be holy. just sit still and be holy for 10 seconds so you sit there do nothing think about nothing for 10 seconds you were holy and by the way there's a certain part of what he was saying that is true that god is the one who's made us holy we don't do anything to make ourselves holy We only do things to make ourselves unholy. And so God has already made us holy, so it's the abstention from unholy things is how we maintain holiness. We abstain from those things that truly make us unholy. Now I wonder which things are those that really make us unholy. Chapter 19, read along with me. Verse two, speak to all of the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father and you shall keep my Sabbaths, I am the Lord your God. Uh, Right off the bat, he's basically saying, you're breaking Sabbath, you're making yourself unholy. By the way, at the start of Sabbath, we call it kiddush. Kiddush is the word for to make holy. That's what Kiddush means. So every Sabbath when we do Kiddush, we recognize the Sabbath is holy. So if you fail to keep the Sabbath, fail to keep Kiddush, you're not doing the definition of holy. You're doing something else. Uh, Verse 4, Do not turn to idols or make yourself molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Idolatry makes you unholy. Now, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense, it will not be accepted. This is how you make a sacrifice unholy. You can eat the day it was sacrificed, eat the second day after it was sacrificed, third day you now made it unholy and everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord, and the person shall be cut off from his people. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall not leave them for the needy and for the stranger, I am the Lord your God if you do not follow my instructions with care for the needy and the hungry, and so forth, you're being unholy. Wow, that puts a little different spin on the word holy. Well, in the corners of the fields, when they would glean, they'd leave the corners alone. They would harvest the main field. The corners of the field, the the traveler, the stranger, the, the poor could walk into the field and gather the heads of the grain and get some food. When it talked about gleaning the vineyard, you could go through and harvest, but you don't get to go back through again. You get to go through the vines, gather everything you can gather, and you know, you know, if you go to harvest things, you know this happens. Uh, you go through the, you think you got it all, and you look back, and <laughs> when I harvest tomatoes, that's what happens to me. I go through them vines one at a time, you know, getting getting every tomato. Blah blah blah. I get a whole big bowl of tomatoes and I step back and I look back and I can see red all over the place. There's tomatoes I, I missed. If you go back and get them again, that's what's called gleaning it. The Lord said where those areas are accessible such as orchards or fields or vineyards accessible along the road, travelers, strangers, and so don't go back and glean it. Leave that for the stranger, the needy. If you do so, you're unholy. Wow. He goes further. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are to remain not to remain with you all night until morning. I have to be very careful about when I hire somebody to come over and work at my house. And I'm going to pay him. I have to pay him that day. If I don't pay him that day, If we don't have an agreement for something else, like the job is continuing, I'll pay you when you're done. If he came over just for a day, I have to pay him that day. If I don't, I just made myself unholy before God. The hired man is entitled to his wage, pay him. Very specific. Um, Verse 14, you shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind but you shall revere your God, I am the Lord." Someone with a handicap, and you cause a problem for them, you prohibit them from being able to do what they need to do, you make it more difficult for them, instantly you're unholy. That's God's definition of holy and unholy. You just made yourself unholy. I don't care what you think your faith is, if you're blocking the ramp for a disabled person in a wheelchair to come up into that building, that facility, you're unholy. And it puts, puts a whole new kind of perspective on, maybe you should be nice to these people because it will really get you in a lot of trouble with the Lord if you fail to do so. It goes further, verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly." Wow. I think it's fair to say that all of our courts are unholy. They are profane. Because we know that certain leaders, when they misbehave, somehow justice doesn't come to them. We do, people don't judge them the same way they judge others um, with it. National leaders uh, will commit gross sins. They'll become public. It's just kind of a temporary embarrassment to them. It's not the kind of judgment that other people get. And as a result of not being fair judgment, there being partiality granted to the great or whoever, the whole business is unholy before God. It's not that God disagrees with the judgment. He says it's unholy. It's profane. That's a pretty strong spiritual word when you call something profane before God. All right, verse 16, "'You shall not go about as a slander among your people, and you shall not act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people.'" But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to take note of the second greatest commandment. You know what the measure of the second greatest commandment is? It's not that you love the beloved. It's not that you love your friends, people you get along with, people in the same faith. That 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 that, that that's not what that is. It it, it comes on the heels of. The guy that you must love to satisfy the commandment is the guy that most people will hold a grudge against and hate. Somebody does something to you, so you just have decided you're going to dislike him. I, I yeah. And in holding a grudge, you disobey the commandment to love your neighbor and you render yourself unholy. Holiness is a very important part of our faith. And thank God that through the work of redemption and atonement, he makes us holy because we get him. When I received the Spirit of Yeshua into my life, not only did Yeshua come in, but his holiness came into my life. I'm holy just like him. You be holy, you don't try to make yourself holy. You be it. But here in the world, you have to avoid certain behaviors that make you unholy. This is part of the instruction about the priesthood. Is that, And this is part of the instruction about being wise in the Torah. The fact of the matter is that in the Torah, I'm trying to teach you how to make good judgments for your life. Tell you what the rules of life are. Tell you what you should do and there's some very basic rules about how you deal with your appetites of life such as for your ego that we learn the principles of humility and not haughtiness that i teach you about certain things that you consume that we call food the clean and the unclean and i'm also to teach you what's the difference between holy and profane holiness is with God profanity is when we violate and transgress these particular commandments so our job is to be who we really are the people that God made us and not make ourselves into something else that he didn't make so that's our lesson for this Shabbat I trust that it will encourage you And these commandments belong to all people who are believers. All people have to keep these commandments. Amen? Shabbat shalom. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of Brethren Like You. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you, and shalom.